Amen. Thank you for your prayers and uh, church. Uh, we're going to trust the Lord through everything. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 21. Praise team, thank you for leading us today in our singing. Uh, before I get started, I just want to mention uh, there is a deacons meeting this afternoon. Uh, the time has changed for the start of the deacons meeting, so we will begin the deacons meeting at 445 rather than 345. So still West 100, but deacons will meet at 445. This will give you an opportunity to uh, meet and then stay for the uh, children's uh, Kids Rock uh, uh, Christmas concert tonight. So we encourage you to be here for that church family. Second uh, Samuel chapter 21, if you will. Second Samuel and chapter 21. Have you ever wondered why you are the way that you are why do you like the things that you like? Why do you dislike the things that you dislike? Why is your personality the way that your personality is? Why are you good at the things that you're good at? And why do you struggle with the things that you struggle with? Now look, there are a variety of, a variety of answers to all of these questions, right? For one, we all have just natural bents in life. God has made us a certain way and that can explain a lot about our personalities and it can explain a lot about our giftedness to a degree. And it's true that the environment in which we're raised, that we grow up in, also can have great influence over us. The way your parents spoke to you, the way your parents encouraged you, maybe the way your parents discouraged you at times, all come into play and making you the person that you are today. The situations that we find ourselves in in life can also be attributed to the decisions of others. I mean, this is true if something as dramatic as fetal alcohol syndrome or as common as generational poverty. Children who are born with fetal alcohol syndrome are, are shown to uh, you know, be behind the curve when it comes to physical or social or mental conditions, and these are ultimately irreversible. They're just going to be behind. Children who grow up in poverty often have a more difficult life because of the lack of opportunity that had been afforded to them, and oftentimes the lack of parental involvement in their lives. So we can understand there's a lot of different influences, a lot of different factors that go into making us the people that we are today. Well, as we look to 2 Samuel chapter 21, we're going to see how a foolish and sinful decision by King Saul would affect all of Israel and specifically would affect seven sons of Saul as well. So as we read this passage, we're going to quickly find that this is a difficult passage. It's a difficult story. We're going to struggle with the fairness of it all. We're going to struggle with the fairness of what happens in this text. We're going to come face to face with the brutality of atonement, but we should also be encouraged with the mercy of God and find hope in the covenant of God. So if you will, please stand as we read together. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, 
because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan and the son of Saul. And the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehethalite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin of Zela, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Will you pray with me? Lord, today as we look to this text and we understand the difficulty of this text, we pray that that number one, you would give us grace to embrace what you have for us. Number two, that you would give us eyes to see the hope that comes through Christ and through atonement in him. God, help us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, most scholars recognize that these last chapters of 2 Samuel form kind of an epilogue to the whole book. Certainly, the events of chapter 21 happened sometime earlier in King David's reign, though they're not recorded for us, we don't know exactly when they took place. At some point in David's reign, the land was hit with a great famine. Three years without rain. Now, this would have been devastating. You can imagine this. The food would have been scarce. The people would have been on edge. Many would have died because of starvation, and people would have been teetering on hopelessness. Now, we have an idea of what it's like to live in an arid climate. We have an idea of what it's like to go without rain, but not like this. 
Even if it doesn't rain here in the panhandle for several months, we have ways to get water out of the ground. And friends, we still build car washes and we still water our lawns, right? So we understand, but not to this degree. This was no ordinary famine. This had all the makings of more than just Middle East weather patterns. And David realized it. He understood that there's something else going on here. So he sought the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. And that's the first thing we see, that we need to recognize God's mercy. We need to recognize God's mercy. So as the king, David would, have, would not have experienced the famine in the same way as all the rest of the people. However, he still would have suffered in the famine. And like the king should, David felt the pain of the people and he cried out to God. And in his mercy, God answered David. God didn't have to answer David. He could have kept silent. He could have ignored David, but instead, God spoke. God made it clear. As I was thinking about David seeking God and, and God showing mercy to David, I was thinking, you know, this, this shows us something else. It shows us that God is real. An inanimate object cannot show mercy to anyone, cannot help anyone, cannot speak to anyone. I'm reminded of the prophets of Baal, the top of Mount Carmel. Elijah challenged the prophets of the false god Baal to attest. The God who answers by fire is the real God. And you'll recall that the prophets of Baal were very, very passionate. They, they chanted and they danced and they cut themselves and they pleaded with their God, Baal, to answer by fire, but Baal's not real, so Baal can't answer by fire. And Elijah prayed, and God consumed the altar on which the beast was on. And God answered by fire. Dale Ralph Davis reminds us of a late Babylonian period prayer, a prayer to every God. It was a prayer that was addressed to the gods who were known, and the gods who were unknown, to any god who may be offended at anything that the people had done. One of the tragedies of this world, friends, that we see over and over is that the god of this age, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of those who are dead in their sin. They have no hope. Yet they're reaching, they're grasping, they're looking, they're coming up with gods of their own imagination because they have to find hope somewhere but they are without hope. They're seeking answers, but the answers can't be found where they are seeking them. But the psalmist is clear. The psalmist is clear. If we continue to seek after life, if we continue to seek after hope in ways that can't offer hope, we will become completely hopeless and like the gods that we create in our minds. In Psalm 115, we, we see so clearly that the gods of the, of the people are, are creations of their own imagination and creations of their own hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak and eyes, but they can't see and ears, but they can't hear and, and they are worthless. And those who put their trust in them, those who seek after them will become like them. They'll become Lifeless, hopeless. There is no place there. But our God is in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. 
And he is characterized by hesed, a Hebrew word that points to his steadfast love, to his mercy, to his faithfulness. Consider this. There are times in life, and everyone has experienced this, where we just don't know what's going on, or we just don't know what to do. There are times in life when the questions outnumber the answers. And in such times, friends, our God, who's in the heavens and does all that he pleases, invites us to ask for wisdom. And James tells us that God gives wisdom generously and without reproach to all who seek him, to all who ask for it. Beyond that, listen to the words of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who knows in every respect and has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. Friends, we need to see that our God is merciful and he invites us to his presence to find help, to find grace. And he speaks and he gives his word and he points us in the direction. God speaks and this is his mercy. It's not just that he speaks though, it's that he acts on behalf of his people. It's that he acts on behalf of the people. And the second thing we see here is that we are to realize atonement's cost. We're to realize atonement's cost. So David is now uh, in the know. He understands because he sought the Lord and God graciously responded to him in his mercy. He understands why there's been this famine. The Lord says to him that there is blood guilt on the house of Saul because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, most of us in this room might be thinking, well, wait a minute. There's been a lot of battles in 1 Samuel. There's been battles in 2 Samuel, but I don't remember hearing about this battle with the Gibeonites. I don't remember Saul uh, trying to put the Gibeonites to death. Well, actually, Saul's actions against the Gibeonites are not recorded for us. But the term blood guilt seems really serious, right? So we need to understand the context of what he's talking about. What is God speaking about when he says that Saul put the Gibeonites to death or sought to put the Gibeonites to death. Well, we need to understand the context, so flip back to Joshua, if you will. Joshua in chapter 9. We're going to read a lengthy little passage here out of Joshua chapter 9 so we can kind of get a clearer picture of what is going on or the background to what's going on and why there was blood guilt on Saul and on his house. All right, Joshua chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the low land, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So you'll recall Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land and their, their marching orders are to rid the land of the pagan influence, right? They are to take control of the promised land. 
But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Shion the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan, who lived in the Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses and our food for the journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from a very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them, verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, uh, Kephira, Baroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not, not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we have swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders said to them. In verse 27, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. So you get the picture here. This is the background, right? These people, the Gibeonites, they deceive the Israelites. The Israelites don't seek the counsel of the Lord and they make a covenant with them to allow them to to live that they would not attack them. It's an oath before the Lord. And this is what God is saying that Saul broke. Saul broke this covenant and he sought to put the Gibeonites to death. Well, what's going to happen because of that? Well, there's going to be a consequence. In verse 2, we learn that Saul struck the Gibeonites down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now, some have speculated that this happened when Saul struck down the priests at Nob. 1 Samuel 22. You recall that he went there. He learned of a, 
of someone who didn't say something that was the right thing to say, so Saul killed all these priests. Now, there's no way to verify this, but it is possible because the Gibeonites may have been serving there along with the priests. As Joshua states, he ser- they served at the altar of the Lord, cutters of wood and drawers of water. See, Saul didn't like the fact that these foreigners were allowed to serve in such a capacity, a capacity that under normal circumstances, the Israelites would have had the responsibility for. Commentator Joyce Baldwin suggests, Saul resented the permission given to the foreigners to serve, even in a menial way at the shrine of the Lord, and therefore put some of the Gibeonites to death. So David asks the Gibeonites, what do we need to do? How can we make this right? How can atonement be made? And by the way that the Gibeonites answer, it's clear that they believe that if atonement is to be made, it has to include blood. It has to include death. Now the concept of atonement has to do with making amends. It has to do with appeasement. This is where the story gets difficult, right? The Gibeonites proposed that seven sons of Saul be given to them that they may hang them, that they may die. So immediately we start to think, well, wait a minute. It wasn't their fault that Saul was going to kill these Gibeonites. It wasn't their fault that Saul chose to do what he did. Some of us may even be thinking, well, wait a minute. Why did the whole nation have to suffer because of what Saul did. Why was there a famine that lasted three years because of what Saul did? Well, we don't know about the delay, right? Because obviously this happened when Saul was alive and Saul had been dead for many, many years. So why didn't it happen when Saul was living? Don't know. Dale Ralph Davis does suggest that taking an oath in God's name and then violating it discredits God's reputation as it essentially is taking the Lord's name in vain. So we can understand the seriousness of the consequences, but maybe not the timing. But why did the whole nation have to suffer? And to answer that, we have to think, who was Saul? Saul was king, and he represented the people of Israel. So in his actions then, as he represents the people of Israel, the whole people of Israel would suffer. And we're gonna talk more about this here in a minute. So two sons and five grandsons of Saul are selected and the Gibeonites hang them for Saul's offense. And the end of verse 14 suggests that God accepted this sacrifice and he brought rain upon the land. Now, this story tells us of the cost of atonement, that it involves blood and that it involves wrath. And the account of Rizpah, the bereaved mother of two of the lost sons, who goes and guards the bodies of these slain individuals from the birds and from the beasts of the field, cannot but elicit emotion. In fact, the whole situation is just sad. And the whole situation is just a little bit puzzling to us. And while we may not fully understand it, friends, we need to look to the greater atonement that is made at Calvary representing humanity when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden he brought about the fall of humanity Adam's rebellion set a deadly course for all who would be born after him infected with sin 
spiritually dead and separated from the creator God. And to stay in one's sin means eternal punishment. The apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam represents humanity. Adam, as the representative of humanity in the garden, sins, and all will be born after him with a sinful nature, infected by sin. We find ourselves in a desperate condition, guilty and condemned and unable to save ourselves. And by the way, we can't just blame Adam. We can't just say, oh, it's all on Adam. Don't, Don't count me free. Don't count me guilty. It's all on Adam. I'm free. No, because everyone in this room has sinned just the same. Everyone in this room has rebelled against the one true and living God just the same. We're guilty, whether in our thoughts or actions and attitudes or words, we do not love God as we ought to any day of our existence. In order then to be reconciled to God, atonement for our rebellion must be made. We need a savior because we cannot save ourselves. And by God's grace, he has provided the savior we need. The creator God who exists eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, from the foundation of the world, planned to bring redemption to mankind through the second person of the Trinity, through the Son of God. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And what are we doing? We're celebrating that God became man that he took on flesh, enter King Jesus. And it's through his perfect life and through his substitutionary and sacrificial death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead that atonement for sin is made. Jesus, who never sinned, died in our place, absorbing the wrath of God on our sin so that we might experience and receive the forgiveness of sin. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 states that Jesus is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Paul writes concerning the efficacy of Jesus' work in Romans chapter 5. Let's read in verse 15 through 21. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See what the Apostle Paul is saying here? He's saying that in in Adam is death, but in Jesus' life. Adam represents us in, in the garden But Jesus represents us at the cross and in the resurrection. And all who will put their faith in him will receive the grace of God. A righteousness that outshines sin and lasts to eternal life. Eternally. 
The cost of atonement is great. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who takes away our sin. The very one who we offended and sinned against suffers and dies in our place. And while this is not easy to grasp, frankly, it's impossible to fully comprehend and understand it is the truth of the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when we consider the cost of redemption, how can we not respond in thanksgiving and in praise? How can we not worship the one who has secured our redemption? Friends, may we give ourselves fully to him who loved us and gave himself for us. May we serve him by loving God's people and proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Atonement's cost was great, and Jesus paid it all. Finally, rejoice in the king's covenant. Rejoice in the king's covenant. Let's just take one more look here at verse 7. Second Samuel 21, verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. All right, so what is this pointing us to? It's pointing us to something we've talked about throughout our study in 1 Samuel especially, this relationship between David and Jonathan, how they cared for one another, they loved each other, they were like brothers, and how they were to care for one another, even showing kindness to, to, their, to their family. And David would prove that covenant, he would hold true to that covenant as he seeks out someone to show kindness to, and that one that he finds is Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. David spares Mephibosheth from this assault, from this death that the Gibeonites seek after. But if we stop to think of it, in the world's eyes at least, wouldn't Mephibosheth have been the most likely candidate? I mean, he was crippled. From the world's eyes, he wasn't worth a whole lot. From the world's eyes, he's the one they should have gone. But David shows compassion and kindness and stays true. The king stays true to the covenant that he has made. We don't know why the seven sons of Saul who were chosen were chosen, but we know why Mephibosheth was not chosen. He wasn't chosen because of the promise, because of the covenant that the king made, that David made with Jonathan, an oath before the Lord. And while the promise means little to us, we need to see the embrace, we need to see and embrace the greater promise, the greater covenant that comes through Jesus Christ, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Consider that in Jesus we have been born again to a living hope, that we have a protected salvation, that we are more than conquerors, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that God causes all things to work together for the good for those who are in him, for those who love him. That God will 
finish the work that he has started, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we have peace with God, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Friends, these are promises that are associated with the new covenant. Hear that word covenant. This is God's promise to those who are in Christ. And I could go on, right? I could go on. They're not just for the future, they're for now. And they're for forever. And this is worth rejoicing in. That God would place his covenant love on us, those who are spiritually crippled, those who have rebelled against him, those who have raised our fists against him and self-sufficiently, but those who have experienced his grace, those who have been humbled by his spirit, and those whose hearts have been made soft to receive the truth of the gospel. Can we fathom it? Can we understand this? We don't deserve it. And we can never earn it. But God graciously gives it. No matter what you're facing in life today, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life means that God will see you through to the end. For the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance in him until we acquire possession of it ultimately. Why? To the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. So how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that all who have placed their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ have been sealed with the Spirit. And as we close this morning, I hope you'll consider these truths. For us who are in Christ, rejoice because of what the King has done for you. Worship the God of mercy and the God who has secured your salvation at great cost. Respond to him by living for him and loving him and loving his people. And for those who are not in Christ, whether you have been in church for a long time or maybe you're new to church, will you recognize your need for a savior? Will you humble yourself? Will you call out to God for forgiveness of sin? Will you put your trust and your hope in him. I'm gonna pray, and then after I pray, you'll have opportunity to respond to what God is doing in your life. Maybe there's some in this room who recognize that you are not in Christ, that today you are still dead in your sin because you have never confessed your sin to God and put your trust and your hope in him. Today can be the day of salvation. Today, you have opportunity to cry out to the creator God who loves you, through Jesus who died on the cross for sinners. Today, you can put your hope and trust in Jesus and be promised forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Maybe there's some, some in here who are trusting in Christ, but you've never been baptized. And today, you wanna share with the church that you're ready to be baptized. That you, and we wanna rejoice with you. We wanna celebrate with you what God is and has done in your life. Maybe there's some in this room who want prayer and there are people right next to you who would love to pray with you or you're free to come up here and we'd love to pray with you up here. Maybe there's some who are interested in membership in this church. You'd like to know how you can become a member. Or maybe you've completed the membership process and you're ready today to share that you want to join this church family. I know that God's at work. 
How is he at work in your life today? Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you are at work. And thank you that we have hope because of Jesus Christ. Lord, when we look to difficult passage, passages in Scripture and they leave us wondering how to make sense of it, I pray that we look to Jesus who makes sense of all things and we find our hope in Him. Thank you for pictures that we see that point us to the atonement that is found in Jesus and the hope that we have in Jesus. God, work among us even now for your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. Would you stand and respond as God leads?